Make sure you subscribe to the Below the Surface podcast by Eclipsium in partnership with CRA. Myself and Scott Shefferman host this show, and we've had the pleasure of speaking with some amazing guests, including Zeno Kova, Richard Hughes, Vincent Zimmer, and more. We discuss topics related to firmware and supply chain security, uncovering those pesky vulnerabilities that lie, well, below the surface in your environments. You can find all the episodes and subscribe by visiting eclipsium.com forward slash podcast or searching for below the surface in your favorite podcast catcher. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just talked with Heather Flanagan about the world of documenting RFCs, including a little bit of history where they came from and the ways people can contribute to them today. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella, and it's just about time for the news. But first, you can find us on Instagram now. Follow us for highlight reels. I don't think we've ever made one, John. We'll have to think about that. Giveaway announcements and more at, secure, at SEC Weekly. SEC Weekly. That's, that's where we are on Instagram was my obviously i use instagram all the time insightful type of comment um so let's ignore that john and talk about the news of the week maybe something i paid a little bit more attention to and um i do have to start off with maybe two that were just kind of they they, they appealed to my my inner mic one was in a, a fun article i hacked magic the gathering arena for a 100 win rate now this was fun because I actually have some old magic cards still to this day from, you know, second edition antiquities when, when that was coming out and, uh, was just recently getting back into it because of the Lord of the Rings and the Doctor Who universes beyond expansions. But nobody cares about that. What they would care about is a really fun write up about looking at protocols. And that's the other reason this was really neat because the, the, the author here talks about how they, look at network traffic. And with something like Magic the Gathering Arena, which is just a turn-based card game, there's very little states, there's very little action activity that comes from the client. So it's very it's it's a lot easier to handle just on the on the server side, unlike a first-person shooter, MMOs yeah. that have a lot of heavy client server communication. So in a degree, it's actually a little bit perhaps easier just to analyze and reason through. And this was really neat how they um how the author just went through, talked about an attacker-minded um, approach to this. So Dan Mayer wrote this up, and uh, I think it's one of those things that I recommend to readers, go read and just understand how do other people think about software, because that might inform if you're a bug bounty researcher, if you're designing a client-server protocol, a state machine, how might other people? How do other people look at it? What do they think of? And that can inform how you might be thinking of it as well. And um then go play some magic because the state machine of a, a magic the gathering match can get pretty complicated once you start getting some instants and some summons and some interrupts is pretty awesome i was um a little i i entered this article excited um because it sounded the first few paragraphs first few pages like he was actually going to find a vulnerability in the card version of the game i'm like oh this should be oh. good like and i think that's just interesting <laughs> i think that's interesting to think about like how you know this is super nerdy in a way, but like, how how would you? Is there a possibility to find um, protocol er- issues in actual physical card games and leave the tech out of it? No. Okay. Well, then what what Ooh, happens in that translation into digital? That ha- and I thought that one kind of sort of interesting, um, but then I had a bone to pick. Um, this dude manages to use. I don't think it's directly an image from the card deck, but he's got an image of Sparky in there. Um, I actually, at one point in my life, 
unfortunately, several decades ago, got a cease and desist letter from um, Wizards of the Coast when I had a magic card as an image on my website. So um, I'm, I'm a little <laughs> perturbed about that still. Uh-oh. All right. Well, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll talk to Dan and get some more hacking going on. Um, uh, we'll, we'll keep it ethical. Don't worry. Um, man, this is recorded. We should move on, John. Uh, there's another article that just appealed to me very quickly. This was, yes, a directory traversal flaw. Uh, Apache struts. And if we say Apache struts, of course, people are going to think Equifax, blah, blah, blah. I will point readers back to an article we covered back in episode 256 that was actually a little bit more insights on the Equifax breach. It wasn't just... Oh, they just did, they didn't patch anything. It was, well, they, they didn't patch anything because they didn't know about it and a few other things went wrong. But there's a part of this is that um, I just like talking, why are we doing, you know, why do we need file uploads and placing them on the file system in the first place? Like how common is this? And why aren't there better patterns for saying, here's the sandbox? Thinking of Chirrut, something like that, old school Unix, but that's just where my mind goes and, and why I pick on or like to highlight path traversal vulns a lot. They, they, they tend to open up conversations about sandboxing, how to handle user-generated content, how to up, where to put uploaded content. So more of, more of a rhetorical uh, exercise this week for me on that one. Interesting. So this one first caught my attention um, when they posted it, I guess to OSS Security. The subject was Apache Struts excessive disk usage. I'm like, what? Um, I, I think, yeah, you brought up a few interesting points. So quickly on the, um, anytime you are taking an up and we both know this is sort of preaching out to the, the, hopefully the choir, um, anytime you take an upload from a user versus just like a string input, there's potential for resource issues, right? So it comes down to. Do you store that in, in temp space? Do you store it in scratch space? Do you try to keep that in memory? If you're going to keep it in memory, how many uploads can you have simultaneously? So you start running into you know pretty serious issues, particularly nowadays where it's not uncommon for, if I take a photo off my camera, that's how many megabytes, and I start uploading those, and there's like me and 20 of my friends, suddenly that what was um, you know a, a pretty simple upload site. Now, do you, if you go do it in memory, do you need to start having gigs of RAM just to like store that? Um, and then knowing the way our world works, <laughs> where's the buffer overwrite overflow and how's that actually going to come into things there? So it, it does become a complex issue. I mean, this is why we have things like the, um, the file transfer appliances, which have had their own little issues over the last few years. Um, but yeah, I'm going to come back to the struts aspect of that in a, a few articles here, but, um, th this, this was, you know, these these are they're tough, and there's still a ton of Java use out there. But um, let's see, they at least caught it before <laughs> someone else did. <laughs> True, and well, and speaking of Java, maybe this is where we want to go. You you did have an article here about Log4j um, that's still <laughs> lurking around there, um, hasn't fully been fixed. God damn it! Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Veracode uh, put out a um, a um, a report on the state of log4j vulnerabilities. <sighs> um, Long sigh. 38% of applications out there which are using log4j are still running a vulnerable version of log4j. The second part which caught my attention is 79% of the time, developers never update third-party libraries after including them into a code base. Um, 
so as someone who sits through um, application security product pitches, either from a advisor point of view or an investor point of view or a consumer point of view, my friends, do you have any idea how absolutely tired I am of hearing startups tell me about how they can detect and prevent against Log4j? So if we can't just patch our damn application, why are we spending money on someone telling us that we need to patch our application? It's like this is this is going on for how many years now? This is a two years. Folks haven't been able to patch their applications. And I, I get that. Mm, 5, 10, maybe even 15% of apps out there that we don't have the source code or no one's maintaining it or whatever else is going on. But if we're in a, a, a world where like you can't replace a jar file, uh, I, you know, that <laughs> we're going to be happily doing this podcast for a few decades more. Um, it's <laughs> come on guys. This is just, I'm, I'm being a little ranty and it's, it's not really purposeful. It's just like, this is how I react to this thing. I literally sit in so many pod or not podcasts. <laughs> I sit in so many application pitches where some very well-meaning person who is trying to figure out a way to get me to buy his product is telling me, Hey, I'm able to identify log four J issues. Please do me a favor, patch your app just so I don't have to deal with that anymore. That's all. I will stop now. <laughs> that's right. Vendors, switch all of your pitches to how they can block <laughs> solar winds, because I'm sure that's the other one that John wants to hear about. Um, and while he's banging his head against the, the, the desk, I also wanted, on, on that theme, John, there was a great article actually from... Um, uh, for Scout, who discovered a whole bunch of flaws in the Sierra wireless Airlink routers. And I have an article here from Decipher, um, Duo doing great work with that Decipher um, uh, news. But the thing that stood out to me is not the almost two dozen volts. I think there was one critical and a bunch of high. But I'm going to quote from the article, from the Decipher article about uh, the use of tiny XML. Because meanwhile, Tiny XML is an abandoned product that has not been main project that has not been maintained for almost a decade. So researchers said the upstream flaws will not be fixed and must be addressed instead by downstream impacted vendors. So, you know, perhaps if these vendors are pitching, they can find and you know find log4j. Maybe they can start looking for Tiny XML too out there. But this really is just like, yeah, how does? I don't. I didn't have time to look up the pedigree of these Airlink routers. Like how long ago? Like where did they start from? When did they initially? Did did they take in Tiny XML when it was not an abandoned project? But um, that brings in a whole different aspect of how do we deal with software that nobody that's abandoned. That's, I'm, that's I think that's the ideal word to, to react to here. So I thought they when this came out when I saw this. I thought they were acquired by Cisco, but I guess not. I must be thinking of some other wireless vulnerability which came up. Um, yeah, sorry, guys. I'm, it's one of those days. Uh, yeah. It, it's, I mean, so th this this has a little more leeway, at least in my mind, than than just the, the, the Log4j and friends. Because if you're going to rip out a library and replace something else, that requires some amount of work. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm guessing a good number of these things are, you know, they're air-gapped um, or they're somewhere far away and it's going to be harder to update them. But still, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get, and 
Because I'd love to know just what does it need the XML for? Is that just a config file and maybe just make it text, make it YAML, yeah. make it something else? Because not everything needs to be XML. Oh, XML is so gnarly. Um, so there's another thing, John, that I had a several articles here about AI. And now there was one about a benchmark about how do prompt injection scanners perform? There's the benchmark for evaluating the cybersecurity risks of LLMs from uh, from Meta. This is their Purple Llama. There's also an article about using AI to automatically jailbreak GPT-4 using AI. We can dive into the details in a second, but I kind of, to me, I wanted to talk more about the lowercase m meta of these articles in the sense of this feels like early 2000s web security if we just talked about here's a benchmark of cross-site scripting scanners here is a benchmark of the risk like a top 10 list of the cybersecurity risks of chat gpt4 for example and it sounds like we're really just reinventing a lot of the the, the interesting to researchers parts or of just here's how to do one scanner. Here's how to look at a little tactical thing without stepping back. And I see you smiling. So hopefully we can launch you yet into another. Here's your soapbox. You're, you're concocting a virtual world of hell. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, and this is you know we, we've we've briefly hit upon this, but it's it's um, where do I want to go? There's a, and I will forget them, but there's a sort of five things. And this used to be part of my pitch when I was begging people for money at Laird Insight. But um, if you think about apps, uh, um, I'll say InfoSec in general, what I used to say is every time a new technology comes along, um, you're going to get five or six of these security band-aids, which get slapped on, right? So there's, you know, the firewalls, there's the, the scanners, there's the um, intrusion detections, there's the antivirus, there's encryption systems. Um, there's these same little separate you know, um, Muppets in the cir circus sort of go along and, and sort of make money off the next thing coming. Um, not saying that's bad, it's needed, but like, it's how do we do this better? Um, and we're seeing it now again with this. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, we could, I bet, Mike, if we went back a, a 18 to 24 months, we probably had the same conversation around mm -hmm. the crypto stuff. Um, but this seems a little more, hmm. I, I think probably why we're seeing this is the folks that had banging on the drum of we need to improve security in AI have sort of, they've primed the field. So now everyone's going like, oh, we're here to do that. And um, I know a pretty good number of VCs out there are, are raising funds just purely to invest in um, AI security or AI in general. Like you can, I mean, if we if we took application application security weekly and through like artificial intelligence at the beginning of it, we could probably raise some funding ourselves right now. Um, so yeah, it, it's. I, I think it's worth the, the question. I guess comes down to it's worth thinking through. We need these type of things, but where do we either do we improve? Do we become more um, uh, uh, more refined in how we apply those tools and create those tools for these technologies? Or do we, you know, do we maybe, hey, here's an idea. Um, look at those technologies a little bit earlier and go, hey, I've seen this Band-Aid before. Let me see if I can actually, you know, make sure that the, the overall technology doesn't need that Band-Aid and, you know, maybe actually do this a little bit earlier. Um, and I know that's not how startups work, but it, yeah, it's, maybe we'll see if it works faster this time. How about that? 
Yeah, that's a, I like where you came around to that because for me, and, and you were helping to to elucidate what I was trying to go for, to use a nice big word, is that you know recreating the web app firewall for for AIs, recreating the 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 XSS equivalent scanner, the prompt injection scanner, as opposed to saying what is the framework that we could build that makes prompt injection jailbreaking immaterial, unconsequential, low impact. And from a design perspective, I think that's what I'm trying to express here. Um, with that said, the articles can be pretty fun. I'll, the 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 jailbreaking one is neat in the sense that they don't have to seed their jailbreaking uh, tree of attacks that they call it. Uh, it's also a tap, which is really fun. Uh, magic reference is that um, it can just figure out the fun of you know, basically tell me how to build a bomb is, is trying to, to convince the, uh, demonstrate the jailbreak. Now, I don't think there's even any LLM out there that's going to give you realistic instructions to how to build a bomb, but it's an easy, uh, very um, eye-catching metaphor for this is a jailbreak that in, in other terms might just be generate some abusive content or, you know, go be racist and misogynist on, on, a, on a social media feed or in a customer support network. That's the, the equivalent of the more realistic version of the, show me how to build a bomb. So I wanted to highlight that because it was a fun read. It was pretty neat to see. And um, still a lot of research around just the, the prompts and the jailbreaking that we've been covering the last two or three weeks now. Hmm. And yeah, it's... Um I guess we could start a betting pool on how long until we see um, uh, directory traversal and um, upload oh, bugs yes. in the LLMs. We should actually do that. How about let's? Yeah, we should like keep an eye out and like see see how long it takes before we find a directory traversal. This is perfect, and um, maybe also in the first CVSS for version four for a CVE. That one I want to remind our listeners too. So let us know, uh, John. Uh, there's Purple Llama from Meta, but there's also some other t articles from Meta that caught both of our eyes around E2E encryption that's finally getting rolled out. Now, I grabbed this as just an example, a way to talk about an, of um, security by design. So this is application security that is the engineering side, the, the implementation and design aspect. And, you know, I think we've talked about, I think it was uh, NCC Group, if I'm remembering. We've also looked at some, or uh, sorry, a Trail of Bits as well, that does some analysis of these E2E implementations with Signal, for example. And the reason I like to pull this out is it's a little bit more than just saying, well, why don't you encrypt the in, encrypt between users? Just do some key management between end users. And that speaks, I think, a little bit to our conversation with Heather and RFCs. There is ambiguity or there's details that have to be ironed out. How do you de how do you handle device recovery? How do you deal with spam? How do you deal with that abusive? information that or you know messages that may come through that can no longer be inspected so you know facebook meta does have franking capabilities things that can opt in to say i received some abusive material so that they can react to it but they can't proactively now look into this e2e which i'll also mention brings in a whole political aspect of um you know governments police, you know, legal legal inspection as well. So again, touching on areas that Heather was mentioning when we're talking about RFCs. It's funny. Um, I was just reading through on the article you had, the, the post from Meta. I, I saw a section on application security. I'm like, wow, they're actually calling us out, not us, but AppSec. Um, and then I realized they were going in a mm, different direction. Um, yeah, so that the, the 
Mike got the, the the post directly from Meta. Um, sorry, folks, I've got a uh, um, a paywalled article from Wired, which is looking at this from the point of view of why exactly did it take Meta seven years to turn on ED um, for all chats? And I think um, as I was sort of re-reviewing this before the show this morning, I, I seven years is still a bit of a stretch. So maybe two or three. Um, let's call it four, and you know, split the rest in vacation. Um, but I think it's 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 interesting from the point of view of like yeah, they're starting with Signal, which existed and still exists, and like you know, it's um, done quite a good job and it's being well adopted. But even the point being, even though they're t- starting with Signal, the amount of work that Meta had to do to sort of a bring it into their technologies, into their platforms, but also b make it usable in a way that is um, acceptable for Meta's users is really sort of where you have to start doing the head scratching and get this stuff to work. So, you know, it's, we often think of Apple as like the, the UI UX company that like, you know, they care about customers and all that type of thing um, and making everything pretty and easy to use. If you think about a really core thing that um, Facebook has done over the last decades is they believe in that same mantra because the easier they can make that for a user to use, you're going to get that user to use the product and stay in with it. So now you take that, um, focus on extreme customer, extreme customer focus, and how do you how do you seamlessly bring encryption into that? And then sort of the the Wired article talks through like, okay, if if I and I did this last week, I my my screen my the screen on my phone got cracked, so I had to replace the phone. Um, the new phone, like, okay, I didn't see what the Facebook stuff would signal. It's like I have to go and transfer the data over to the new phone. And I did that with way too many things. But like, so a lot of what they were focusing on is like, how do we make that easy? And I, the, the comment I put into the show notes is, yeah, it's not just like adding three or four lines into your code to encrypt and decrypt and maybe a dozen more for the, the key, ex, key exchanges and rotations. It's everything else around that that, that you got to sort of think through and especially if you want to do it right and smoothly. So it's, again, I, I hate to say interesting to think about, but it is interesting to think about. And that's why uh, we both threw this in here. Yeah, and it's the very opposite end of the spectrum from the very old school 1998, I think, paper from uh, uh, about why Johnny can't encrypt, Mm. which we'll have to uh, go throw into the show notes about the the usability of GPG. And everything you summarized was kind of why GPG is so unusable and the considerations to make metas end-to-end encryption here actually usable. That's Um, a really, I mean, sorry, briefly, that's... I mean, I hope the dichotomy, the dichotomy isn't quite that wide, but I think that really sort of puts it mm. into focus, right? Of like, um, yeah, any of us can use GPG. Uh, there's a hell of a lot more people using Meta, Meta's messaging pa- platforms, and there's a reason for that. Yeah. yeah. You want, we, you, actually, we'll, while, before we end this, we'll see if you can go through and uh, set up some uh, GPG and send mail, since uh, that was uh, you and Heather were. Having some fun trying to uh, remember how to configure all that, yes. But uh, instead, maybe, John, you could tell us about Accenture taking an industrialized approach to cloud controls. This was something that feels modern, new, different, and maybe not even inspired by pure application security tech world. Yeah, it's. I was... um... I don't know, this is one of those weeks where like the the manager side of my brain was sort of picking out a little more sort of... (laughs) They're, they're not meant to be hand-wavy articles, but they're a little higher level to sort of get people to step back and think about things. So this one's from CSO. Um, I see a contributing writer, so I'm wondering if there's a bit of a PR spin on this. But anyways, Accenture, um, 
long story short, uh, you know, when they first started going to the cloud, they let any of their developers just sort of create their security groups and do whatever. And initially, it was, it was click ops, and then they started doing some a little more DevOpsy type things. But what they realized when you're in a large org doing this type of thing, what ended up working for them, whoever came up with the idea, was to uh, use what's called the Toyota way. So for those who aren't familiar, um, um, for those who have heard this 10 million times, I'm sorry, uh, but Toyota is known for, they've done quite a lot of things for um, to make manufacturing in their assembly plants to really to allow anyone to help improve the overall resulting product that goes out in that car on the road. Um, you know, they're, they're known for any employee can like pull the, the stop uh, cord, the end on cord on an assembly line to stop it if they see an issue. Um, and there's a bunch of different things. So there's a Wikipedia page on this. I'll, I don't think I put it in the show notes. I'll add it in. And there's actually 14 points in this in this the Toyota way, um, using 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 visual control so no problems are hidden. Use only reliable t- tested technology. Some of us have problems with that one. Grow leaders who are thoroughly understand the work, live the philosophy, and teach it to others is super interesting to me. Um, develop exceptional people and teams who follow your company's philosophy. So there's all these really sort of they're slightly heady, but at the same time, um, you know they're they're very grounded in a way. And so um, Accenture is sort of taking some of these concepts and applying them through to to CloudSec from the point of view of like, hey, let's allow anybody to be able to um, have a say or make a change on what that cloud security looks like within our org. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the base of the article where things start. I thought it'd be interesting for folks just to think about of those 14, what are you using in your companies, big or small? Um, I know a startup isn't going to turn around and say, hey, let's apply the Toyota way, right? That's just, we don't have 14 people. But for the larger companies that have 14 groups just thinking about this, okay, well, what it, does this sync up with your current culture? Could you adjust your culture to do this? Do you have a better way of doing this? So I think it's just one of those things that's interesting to sit back and spend five, 10 minutes sort of thinking about. So I threw it in here with that in mind. Yeah, and I think it's informational read. And it's it, to me, it really speaks to what we would like to see application security evolve into. Mm-hmm. In other words, it doesn't use the phrase shift left anywhere. It doesn't use any cliches. So kudos for also finding a good article that is actually focused on outcomes and what are the and outcomes that seem desirable. Um, maybe not quite a counterpoint. There's a little bit, but related in terms of how to approach security, John. I pulled in this article from ZDNet about kernel security and Linux's unique method for securing code. Now, what stands out to me in this article, this article actually isn't about the technical details of design, sandboxing, uh, the adoption of Rust, for example, or um, you know, using you know compilers to to do analyzers on their their C code. It's more about how does the Linux kernel, how do Linux kernel developers treat security bugs, mm. and they have some, I'll say, interesting to to be still judgmental but less neutral or more neutral mm. about approaches to this. Meaning that you know they have a bug is a bug. They will not call out a security bug to be something more equal than others to uh, pull out our animal farm literature for the day. And, you know, they have some reasons for that. So they do, you know, there's some justification for this. And they say, well, I worked on a, I, I worked on a bug before that at the time, seven years ago, it was not known to be a security bug. And then lo and behold, seven years later, it was demonstrated to be a local privilege escalation. But, you know, that's an anecdote. I can understand that, but it still seems like, 
the security, the communications about security bugs does seem to not be great from the Linux kernel. And the other mention here is that, or the, the other thing they push is just say, just always use the LTS kernel, always keep updating, which is great to say. Um, always keep updating your log for J, a bit of a callback there, but I think there's a little bit difference here between that third-party log for J and Linux kernels stability and so on. So let me pause there and just see, you know, what you thought reading through this in the in the perspective of the policies or the even the politics we could even say of just managing a Linux kernel or just how this might translate to a, an, an organization dealing with their own security. Hmm. Um Greg K. Greg KH as he's known has always got interesting things to say. Um so I I, I like seeing his stuff and reading it when it, when it's out there. Mm-hmm. There was, there was a few, yeah, we, we both sort of, I raised a few things in this article. Um, I think it is, it's really interesting and, I mean, just talking about culture the way it just was, I think it's really interesting to think about the idea of, do you treat all bugs, whether they're security or not, as just a bug? Um, and I, I think what that requires is you have a, a level of maturity in how you deal with bugs in general. So if you're at that place where you wouldn't have to have a special pair of white gloves um, or get like your best people to respond to a security issue, because I mean, usually that's, that's reverse that around. Why do you treat a security issue separately or security bug in your code? Because, okay, you need to get the application security people to look at it because obviously you're, maybe not obviously, you think your developers can't figure it out by themselves. Um, You think that it's, um, well, it's definitely going to have a higher risk, so that's a hard one to deal with. But you think that maybe um, there's something special with it that you have to get like your best security person, or excuse me, your best developer, I keep saying that, or your best, like the person who knows that particular part of the code because someone else couldn't come in and look at it. So it's, I think it's interesting thing about why do you treat security bugs separately? And then could you get to a point where there is that level of parity in how you treat those things? So I think that's, interesting um he makes another comment in here about their security team is different than some security and their security team is different because they are reactive not proactive um (laughs) my friend (laughs) most security teams are reactive uh but then yeah there's the final one which is um the group does not make announcements about security fixes which is um i'll say unfortunate I think the idea of of saying, hey, everyone should always keep on LTS, uh, to me, is a sign of lack of operational understanding. Uh, it's one thing for us with desktops or laptops or you know, even 10, 20, 30, 40 computers in the house to go through and <laughs> patch them when no one else is there and reboot and do things like that. But if you're running a fleet of, let's call it 50,000 uh Linux instances on EC2 are, I don't know, Azure, pick whatever poison you want. And you have to go through and start rebooting all those damn things because there's a vulnerability out there or spin up new ones. It When you're on even a thousand, the scale's not that bad. But for those like, you know, the, the orgs out there that have like large number of instances or like a supercomputing farm, um, that that's painful. Uh, if you think about it, if you've got 50,000 computers, you spend five minutes in each one those numbers start adding up really quickly. Um, and there, there's an article that, 
I don't think I got it into our show notes. I'll go back. I'll make a note to look for it. Uh, actually, no, yeah, it's, it's, there's an article from Facebook for people who want to beat me to the punch, but I'll get in for next week um, that talks about how they patch stuff at their scale. It would have been really interesting to compare against this one. Because, um, yeah, that, those, that it's, it's not just stay on LTS, dude. That, that's, that's a really big ask for a large org. For most of us, it's not that big a deal. Um, but I think it's, it's you got to think, and this is, again, for all of us, right? Like, if you've got an application, you might be thinking about 10 people using it, but what if either 10 people are using it with 10,000 users or is 10,000 people using it? How does that change how you you treat this beast? And then again, back to my original point, maybe you'd think about security fixes differently. Great summary. I think the the idea there too is also that my mind goes to scale because the, as you said, there's when, when you start to see 200,000 systems, 400,000 systems, these are not uncommon in the, you know, the, the, there's, there's maybe 10 companies out there with that, that number. But um, that is not an unknown number, and there's still tens of thousands are still pretty messy to deal with. I bet there's a lot but more companies. Sorry, I bet there's a lot more companies with that skill than we think. Honestly, I bet it's in the thousands. But anyways, keep I going. Could be actually I'd love to hear. Yeah. No, any um, feedback from listeners is always appreciated. Tell us what. If, tell us if you're above that 100k uh, level on your um, systems. And John, maybe take us out on something that you seem to be, um, I'll say, in a mood today. So I'm going to trigger that mood even more <laughs> with an article that you included. So the, 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 fault, the fault is in our stars, ourselves. Um, death to companies that leak massively sensitive information? Yes. Um, so this is, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this TechCrunch article, Haji over there is um, uh He's, he's known for having a bit of a personality in his posts. So I, as you can imagine, I sort of like his things. Um, and so for those who don't know, there was a data breach um, in 23andMe the last few weeks, I think last week. Uh, and the result of that now, I'm not sure how widespread it is, or um, I, I haven't looked at the details, but there's personal data out there. I don't know if the DNA, DNS, DNA has been leaked or just overall. But either way, the, the point is this, this story and my my sort of rant, is at what point do you basically kill a company? If if they, in other words, and maybe it's never, I mean, that's sort of, it depends on how you think about this, right? Are you leading with a carrot and stick or are you leading with a bigger stick or are you going to try and say, hey, we learn and come back and, um, but even if you're doing blameless uh, uh, retrospectives, at some point, if you make a, if your product has a vulnerability which is compromised, which is on such a massive scale that is affecting um, a significant percentage of the population of the planet, what are you know? There, there has unfortunately a lot of people in this world. Um, they only, and this goes sound like a. I leave politics out of it. There's there's a lot of people out there who they're only going to respond if they see like the the penalty. So what what do you do with that? Like so in this case that the in in um coming back to my my previous rant about log4j, the other company he mentions in here I believe is Equifax. Um so for for those folks uh I know it wasn't log4j. But for those folks strut does that company still still deserve to exist? Um, and yeah, it's too big to fail in all those different types of things. But so there, there's one, there's a philosophical, think about like, you know, from a, a company scale or corporate scale, what 
should they, I mean, I, I can't remember which one he was talking about. One of these, I think, yeah, Equifax, $700 million fine. It's like, okay, that's a lot of money, but still, it's a bit of a joke. Uh, so how, what do we do with these type of things? So bringing it back to us is a, from the point of view of like how much effort is too much for us to be ensuring that our applications actually are secure. Uh, and then, you know, what is the, um, what, what's the penalty on that? You know, do we, is there such a thing as something being too secure? Do we internally, when we're working in a company, do we reach a point where we see, we, you know, we join somewhere, we like change teams and we see it's like, oh, we're never going to secure that. Like, okay, do we try to shut it down or do we quit or do we go somewhere else? Or like, do you go and um, reach out to the media and sort of, you know, be that whistleblower? How do we deal with these type of things that are sort of, um, and I, I'm not talking about the, uh, the the directory traversal, which usually isn't that bad. It's like these large scale, like something is, you know, the phrase I'll usually use is cancerous. What what do we do with these? How do we approach them? Do we try to do chemo? Do we try to, how do you get not, <laughs> how do you get from being in that position in the first place? Um, and I think that's, I don't think it's something we've talked about. I don't think it really, I, I think it's been in my mind at some point, but this, this article sort of really brought it back to me. So, um, uh, I figured it was a, a good chance since Mike brought it up to, to leave us on that happy note today. Uh, but um, yeah, most of us aren't nearly at this place. Most of us hopefully never will be. But it's I think it's still worth thinking about how do we how do we ensure we never will be? So do we get one more tool or do we spend a little bit longer doing the code review or do we actually, you know, that person has been really stubborn about fixing this code, do we bring them out for a beer and say, hey, get them to understand it from my point of view? Um, yeah, that that's the thought exercise for the day. Yeah, and I think you know the 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 thoughts that I'll just tag on there at the end is that I would also hope to that the approach doesn't discourage the transparency, the mm. slow toward march step towards transparency that we've seen from Okta, for example, and others that have suffered breaches. So, because if we have an, an immediate dire consequences, that's obviously an incentive to not be transparent. But we've also seen a big push from CISA about like secure by design. So hopefully there will be something we can discover about you've been negligent in your design and your approach to security versus not being a, a pessimist, but you know, breaches do happen. Um, but I don't know where we'll go from there. So maybe this is what we want to think about for, for the next week, John, or at least our listeners can while we go and read some more news. Um, and with that, uh, John is smiling, so I think I should say thank you, John, for joining us. This was another fun week of news and our conversation with Heather. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, please do subscribe. Hit that like button. Check out the show notes. And speaking of the past, check out Falling from Sung. We'll see you next time on Application Security Weekly. Application Security Weekly.